Hey everyone, if you have been listening to Empire, you know that Santi and I are fed up with unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds that make the on-chain experience basically unusable. So the Arbitrum team reached out and they showed us the platform. They showed us what you can do on Arbitrum. Whatever you're doing, you can experience frictionless transactions at lightning speed on Arbitrum. So head over to portal.arbitrum.io and check it out. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into today's episode, I'm excited to share Empire's first ever security partner. Harpy is the best tool to prevent your wallet from theft in real time. Harpy is not just a security solution. They are a peace of mind solution. But don't just take our word for it. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. To learn more about Harpy, click the link in the show notes or visit harpy.io forward slash empire. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into the episode, little plug for Digital Asset Summit coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Tickets are pacing so far ahead of schedule that we had to decrease the discount code. So instead of Empire 20, it is now Empire 10. Head over to the website, Digital Asset Summit, Das London, March 18th to 20th. Use code Empire 10 and get 10% off your ticket. See you in London. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Empire. We have uh, Kyle Simoni back on the show. We have uh, Dimitri uh, previously at 1KX and CoinFund now over at Archetype. Dimitri, Kyle, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. So the basis of this conversation is about DPIN. Uh, this is our first kind of full episode on DPIN that we've done. I have a feeling it's going to be the first of many. The backstory of this episode came came about when Dimitri tweeted out... Um, I'm extremely bearish on DPIN and happy to debate anyone about it on a podcast. I figured I had to hit up Kyle to be on the other side of this debate um, as they've been kind of leading the charge. I think, Kyle, you guys were the first investors to really go big on DPIN with, I think it was Helium, then HiveMapper. I think you guys have done Render. I'm not sure if you've done any of the file storage stuff. I I think Arweave maybe as well, some of that kind of stuff. But um, Kyle, maybe you can tee us up. I've heard uh, DPIN described like the why behind DPIN as... You can build infrastructure, you know, 10 to 100 times faster. It can be more cost effective. Um, you can be more attuned to like hyper local market needs. You can take these idle resources and deploy them. There's a bunch of different whys. What is the like why of Deepin in your mind in terms of why it's so exciting? I mean, to me, what's exciting about Deepin is you can give people equity ownership or equity like ownership in building out something collective uh, that is bigger than any one person. Um, all of the examples you just listed and, and as well as many others, a lot of these things don't work at small scale. If there's one person driving cars around, then like Uber doesn't work, right? You need thousands or millions of people or whatever. If there's one telecom tower, then I got, that's not a network, that, that, right? That, that's, that, that's not useful. Um, and so it turns out there's, there's, large, there, there's a lot of different kinds of problems that um, can be solved if you can incentivize people to work together um, who and those people don't know each other but they need to collectively produce some sort of um, economically productive asset. And you can not only pay those people uh, on an ongoing basis for the OPEX of using the service, but you can also actually incentivize those people uh, with some sort of equity-like ownership for being involved early. If you are the first person to put up a helium tower, you are taking more risk than the person, than the hundred thousandth person who puts up a helium tower. Um, And so you should be compensated for taking on that risk. Right and and Deepin actually provides a mechanism to economically incentivize people for taking that risk. Before we go too deep down the rabbit hole, maybe you could tell us just about Deepin as a whole in the context of using tokens as a coordination mechanism and how what Deepin is in terms of like using tokens to incentivize kind of the crowdsourcing and building of real world physical infrastructure. Maybe you could expand on that. Sure. So, so the basic idea in DPIN is, um, you know, you need to build out the supply side of a network. We'll, we'll use Helium here since it's kind of the, the first of its, of its kind. Um, so you, you, if you're going to have a telecom network, you need to have towers, hotspots everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, you could go online and you could create hotspots and sell them to people and say, hey, plug it in. And whenever the demand starts coming by, uh, you'll start getting paid, you know, per byte of data. Um, the, the problem with doing that is, you know, if you're the first guy to buy a hotspot, well, like that, no, no customer of that network is going to be interested um, because there's not enough hotspots. 
no one knows what the exact threshold is at which the number of hotspots is sufficient. Maybe it's 100,000, maybe it's 400,000 hotspots, whatever. Some large number of hotspots with some degree of geographic distribution is required before you can actually call it a functionally useful telecom network of any form. Um, and so the idea with, with DPIN is you can go to those people and you can say, look, we're going to give you uh, tokens, in, in the case of Helium was HNT tokens, for putting up hotspots. Um, and you can define the formulas that, that specify how those tokens are handed out. Uh, in the case of Helium back in 2019, when the network first launched, it, it was a very, very simple model. One that in hindsight uh, was not optimal, um, and, but the model was just, it was just X number of tokens are minted per day. And based on however many hotspots are out there, you get you know, X divided by what, however many hotspots are, are, are present. Um, that was a very simple model. But what that incentivized was people who believed in the idea early to go buy hotspots. Some people bought 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 hotspots, and they put them up you know, in different places. Um, the beauty of this model is that it allows you to build up the supply side of the network to get to that minimum threshold scale. Um, and, and if you end up getting to that threshold scale, then you uh, probably have a mechanism for uh, giving more reward to the people who believed earlier. Again, guy number four took on more risk than guy number 5,040, and that guy took on more risk than guy number 84,000. Um, and so, you know, it's a very elegant way to uh, distribute risk and reward to the people who actually do the work of building out the network. Got it. The idea of Helium, because you've touched on it twice now, is there are these big carriers, the AT&Ts and Verizons of the world. They basically have, nobody's able to compete with them because it's too expensive, um, too cost prohibitive. And the scale that they've reached is uh, basically nobody can break through. And the only way to do this is by a very bottoms up go to market strategy, where instead of you know, another company coming to market, raising $500 million, building these hot, you know, these uh, towers all around the world. Instead, their thesis is, look, nobody can, comp can compete on that model. Instead, what if hundreds of thousands and inevitably millions of people are actually creating these micro cell towers in their home, essentially? Is that the helium thesis? That, that's correct. Yes. Okay. So expand out into, so that's the uh, wireless, basically, I'm, what I'm trying to get at with uh, this is what is the market today? So that's the wireless version of DPIN. Maybe you could tell us about the whole market today, whether it's compute, wireless. How do you break apart this uh, the DPIN industry? Uh, sure. So at the highest level, there's probably two major categories, DVIN or virtual infrastructure networks and DPIN or physical infrastructure infrastructure networks. So virtual infrastructure would primarily be compute resources, so things that are in a computer, so storage, bandwidth, and compute being kind of the three you know physical primitives there, um, and then the the major networks here: Filecoin, LivePeer, Render, Arweave, uh, IO. Now there, there's a bunch. Now Akash, there's a bunch of them, uh, focusing on different kind of subs, you know uh, slices of that, and then there's DPAN, which is physical infrastructure, um, which was really pioneered by by Helium. And then more recently, you've got teams like HiveMapper, you've got teams like Demo, you've got teams like WeatherXM. Uh, there's uh, probably a couple few dozen more that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. Um, but these are, and obviously with the major difference with those is uh, the D-pins versus the D-vins. D-pins, you you're putting hardware somewhere in the world that the, that hardware is intrinsically very GPS sensitive. Um, or, or Right, so like you don't just need a thousand helium hotspots in Austin, you want hundred thousand all over the United States with, with some distribution with, within that. If you're with doing hive map or you're mapping roads, obviously you need people driving everywhere. Um, with D VINs, generally speaking, G GPS sensitivity is much lower, um, than with D pins. Um, there is some degree of GPS sensitivity that, that is a real thing. Um, if you're building a CDN, for example, like latency is a thing. You don't want to be going from Virginia to Texas. You want to be going from Dallas to Austin, not from Virginia to Austin. Um, so you, you have some degree of, of latency sensitivity, but generally speaking is, is substantially less so. Um, th th that, that's like the, the broadest um, way to segment the market. And then you can kind of slice and dice from there. But that, that's probably the most important segmentation. All right. Dimitri, take the other side of this. I know that you've, since that tweet, you've gotten a little more excited about it. Um, you've talked to a lot of good founders and stuff like that, but take the other side of this. Why were you so bearish on, on Deepin back in November? Yeah, I'm happy to give some concerns. I do want to preface by saying archetype 
at Archetype, we are exploring the space. We are talking to founders. Ideally, what I would want, you know, at the end of this podcast is for a founder to reach out and tell me, you know, here's why you're wrong. Here's why we think the timing is now, um, you know, strong opinions, weekly health. Um, and I think the last, you know, month or two has been quite interesting because I have been talking with a lot of mission-driven founders. It's been refreshing to actually talk with these folks in, in the deep end space. An interesting through line that I see when you actually compare crypto to the internet is that the narratives often reflect the cohort of builders that actually see an opportunity. And you could look at this with DeFi, for example, saying, you know, that was the financial engineers and, you know, NFTs or the artists and musicians and DSI, I think, are the biology PhDs. And, you know, I think DeepIn are like the electrical engineering PhDs. So like the internet, I think there is everything for everyone in crypto. And I think there has been more of a critical mass of builders actually coming in today than there were, you know, a few years ago when, uh, when this started. Um, I think the biggest concern to address, and also just to note, you know, at the, I, I, I would hope that a benefit here is also, you know, for founders to, uh, to think about, you know, like, like what are the concerns that they should be thinking about when, you know, when building these things out. Um, and, you know, for, for users, for investors to really know which, you know, what are the right questions to be asking, you know, cause I think n- narratives are healthy to an extent. Um, uh, uh, but I think, we should be looking at both sides to to uh, to make sure we're all going in the right direction. Um, that said, I think one concern that I've had is more on the supply side, where you know Kyle talks about you're able to use tokens to bootstrap the supply side. I think that's true. Uh, I also think that the key word is bootstrap, and I think a big issue for me where we are in this cycle is to what extent can you penetrate the personas necessary to have a supply side be valuable at scale, whether that is some data that you're provisioning or a product platform service. A lot of the deep end projects today often have a pattern by which they use tokens to bootstrap the supply side, and and then they either get some valuable data or 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 some platform service that they then turn around and they sell that to more of a B two B demand side. And I think when you look at a lot of these networks, when you start to think about the sheer amount of scale, you know, dollars that need to be committed, I worry that we're really not there yet in the adoption curve of crypto in general. Because I think we're, we're, we're at the stage roughly where it's the innovators, maybe it's a portion of the early adopters, maybe early majority, but I think we're, we're actually still quite early. And I don't think, you know, the, the, the late majority, they know or care about tokens as much as, you know, everyone on this call and probably the listeners do. So I think it's largely a timing issue. You know, we've seen, you know, I, I ordered... Amazon Fresh last week, and 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 you know I thought about uh, Webvan and and you know like the story of that company raising you know an asinine amount of money just at the, the dawn of the internet and and that failing spectacularly and and they uh, they weren't wrong you know I think a big issue there was internet penetration uh, and 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 I think there there can be some analogies today where I think the the awareness with tokens the on and off ramps are are not quite there yet to really have a lot of these networks get to the scale where they have network effects and they're able to offer something actually valuable to a demand side. Your main concern was around the demand side adoption? Or the uh, supply it, side? It's two things. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, we could talk about the demand side later um, as well. I think that's also a big concern. The argument is on the supply side, the, ability to expand beyond the early innovators and early adopters is going to be very difficult because I still think we're at the stage of the market where very few people in the world uh, find tokens valuable as a mechanism for pseudo equity. Mm. Kyle thoughts. Um, Yeah. So, 
<laughs> the demand side, in a, yeah. at least on the networks, I think about um, <laughs> demand side, they don't have to know what, what tokens are or interface with them at all, even yeah. if the protocols require that in, in protocol. Um, for example, take um, Helium Mobile. Uh, consumers who are signing up for Helium Mobile, you go type in your credit card now and you know you switch your Verizon phone number over. Um, Nova Labs, which is the, the entity that runs Helium Mobile, uh, they actually then take your $20 a month, they turn around, they buy HNT data credits on the blockchain, and they, they do all that stuff. Um, you could say that's centralized, but like the whole point is there's a single carrier, the consumer has a, a centralized you know, entity that they face. So I think that that's like a, a perfectly reasonable abstraction on the demand side. Um, I'll take another example, which is HiveMapper. Um, HiveMapper, where is it? You know, it's good to contrast Helium to HiveMapper. Helium is a direct consumer product. Um, in the case of HiveMapper, no one's buying data from from the HiveMapper DAO. Um, HiveMapper Inc. has uh, signed, I believe, three, four, five different con- commercial contracts. They have not disclosed who any of those customers are, um, but they have them. And actually, they're uh, what, what they're doing now is those customers are paying HiveMapper Inc. Um, HiveMapper Inc. is then turning around and uh, uh, interfacing with the HiveMapper DAO and licensing the data from the HiveMapper DAO, which is the, the entity that actually owns all of the intellectual property of, of those images. HiveMapper Inc., then uh, on top of that data, actually they're doing a bunch of AI processing stuff. So stuff like w- which way is the stop sign facing? Is it 35 miles an hour or 30? All, all kinds of stuff like that. So they're actually at, they're, they're acting as like a value-added reseller to the HiveMapper DAO, right? They're doing all of this, this additional compute and work. Um, and in that case, they're facing whatever these big companies are that are buying buying this data. Um, those companies don't care at all about tokens. Those companies are never interfacing with the tokens at all. Um, so in the case of uh, so so the demand side, I'm not worried about. I think Dimitri, I think Dimitri, your concern is more on the supply side of saying, all right, there's this initial group of folks who cares about tokens, and they'll you know they'll drive their car to get get these tokens. But eventually, you know, maybe there's only fifty thousand people in the world who care about these tokens. Um, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do agree on the demand side. You for sure need to abstract that. But yeah, I mean, here's another thought experiment. Uh, you can maybe say, you know, if you're doing what, uh, if you're collecting weather data, you can say, uh, you can ask the question, you know, how many weather stations are uh, around the world do we need? If you're mapping roads, you could say, how many unique kilometers do we need? If you're building out, you know, a Wi-Fi hotspot network, you can ask how many um, uh, pieces of hardware do we need? And even better, you can denominate it in cost, in dollars of infrastructure. And again, you know, like this is an example which has separate issues, but in an example where the supply side is actually spending, there's a, some capital outlay to actually buy a resource rather than plugging latent supply into a network. But you can say in some example, you know, say you need $10 million, $100 million to, to, to bootstrap that supply side. And you could say then, okay, it costs $500 per piece of hardware to buy. Then you get a number and then you say, oh, we need this many people to buy these pieces of hardware or, uh, around the world and performance or an action. And we believe that we can incentivize them with a token, which you can then say, you know, some portion of the supply um, uh, uh, we can give out that equates to that aggregate dollar spend. Um, the worry is that the, the, the number of people there is going to be quite high and more than the amount of people who actually care about receiving these token incentives today. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to generalize. Um, let's take, again, I'll just use Helium and HiveMapper since we have the most data on them. Um, HiveMapper is particularly interesting because there's a large class of people who drive around all day. Um, the UPS drivers, your Amazon Whole Foods delivery people, obviously Uber and Lyft drivers. Uh, I don't know how many of those people there are, but there's obviously a lot um, is clearly the correct answer. Um, the, and those people drive, you know, 10x or 50x more than you or I do per day. Um, and so for them, the math on, hey, should I buy a dash cam um, is very different than for you or I to buy a dash cam. Um, uh, so I, I think about, you know, that, that that's a very interesting group to go after. Uh, moreover, those are particularly interesting groups because they have their own communities. There's group, you know, online forums for Lyft drivers and Uber drivers and stuff. 
and they can share this and they can say, look, I bought this thing. I made the X amount of honey tokens, right? And you can see this thing going viral very quickly um, in those communities. I don't think you need that many Uber, Uber and Lyft drivers to cover the entire United States um, with, with pretty good pretty good coverage. Um, that, that's just like one example. In the case of Helium, uh, it, it's hard, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing obvious like Uber and Lyft drivers to go after. Um, but we anecdotal, you know, we have some data. There were about a million hotspots, IoT hotspots deployed. Um, the guess is like that represents three to 400,000 unique people. Um, and then on mobile now, you know, I'm guessing there's probably 20 to 50,000, um, you know, unique people who have done mobile hotspots. So we have some data on that today. Um, it's unclear, is that enough or, or how, how do you get more? Um, however, one thing we do know is that um, token prices, uh, well, in the case of Helium, we know that they have this consumer Helium mobile thing. And a lot of people want to sign up for the $20 a month plan. And a lot of those people try and understand what is this thing? Why is the price so low? How does it work? And then a lot of those people get excited to go buy a, buy a hotspot. Um, so you have kind of a natural marketing, like weirdly with the case of Helium, the demand side marketing for you know, Helium mobile also is the marketing for building out the supply side. Um, which is very unique that you have that kind of natural uh, synergy. Um, I, I don't want to try to extrapolate these specific patterns to other deep end networks because I think that the nature of supply and demand for these networks will be will be pretty different. But you know, I think we have pretty good indications so far that um, you can get to at least enough scale to get the flywheel going. Um, uh, we've seen that with Helium, and I think now with HiveMapper and, and fingers crossed, you know, Demo and WeatherXM and a bunch of these other guys will hopefully figure it out as well. Uh, eyes wide open, though, that adding custom hardware that's not latent hardware, it definitely just makes your, it, it's, it's much harder to do, um, both because of the uh, CapEx requirements, hardware manufacturing is obviously difficult, and all, and all that stuff. So definitely you're uh, a lot less room for error in execution. Kyle, you've mentioned this flywheel a couple times. What is the D-pin flywheel? Yeah, I mean, the deep and flywheel would be you get, let's, let's say the threshold scale for a, a wireless network is whatever, 100,000, you know, hotspots. Uh, like if, if you can get to that scale to 100,000, now presumably, okay, customers are ex- excited, they're onboarding, they're, they're paying for, for this data. That now is public information because the transactions are going to go on chain. You're going to be able to see the revenue in real time. Um, that's going to cause potential, you know, buyer number 100, 100, 101,000. To say, oh, I no longer have to speculate uh, on like, is this service useful? Is there anyone willing to pay for it? Right? You now have definitive proof of that, and you can see the revenue in real time. So that that makes it easier to to underwrite the investment as being person hundred thousand and one. Um, obviously, as as that person then uh, you know adds their supply to the network, presumably that's making the network a little bit better. Presumably that will that incentivize the next customer to say, oh, great, the network quality is now at a new higher bar that I, I like it even more. And I'm more willing to pay for it. And so you get this natural effect where more demand leads to more supply, which creates more demand. Hmm. Yeah, it feels like there's kind of two flywheels going on here a little bit. You've got um, higher infrastructure utilization leads to lower unit costs, which leads to higher unit, which leads to more network effects, which leads to higher infrastructure utilization. And then on the other side, it's like you, you actually do have a token flywheel, which is like more token liquidity, higher token value bigger network effects. And that all kind of ties together into like demand to supply to coverage to UX. Um, I yeah. think uh, I, for, I forget the name of I'm blanking on the name of this for I think you guys might have backed this firm EV. I'm forgetting the name of what they stand for. But uh, EV, EV3. EV3. Yeah, they had a great report on on deep and they laid out this flywheel pretty well. Um, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on uh, actually both of you guys because Dimitri, I know you've been doing research the last uh, several months on this and, and Kyle, you guys have been investing heavily the last couple of years on uh, B2C versus B2B for DeepIn. So it sounds like Hive Mapper's business model, they map all the roads, then you've got that data. And right now, I think it's Google's probably the world leader in this, um, but it's very hard to scale that. So what Hive Mapper can probably do is they can sell all of this for maybe let's call it 10 times cheaper to, to companies who need the, the road data. Um, but Helium on the other side is, a, so that's a B2B model. Helium on the other side is more B2C, right? They've got, there's now consumers signing up for their, uh, you know, Helium cell phone plan. What is your takeaway, Kyle, in terms of B2C versus B2B in terms of the best model for Deepin? I don't think there's a, a best. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be dependent on the nature of, of the demand side, 
there is no consumer demand side for hive map for that 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 won't ever be a thing um mm. they only sell to enterprises helium is the exact opposite they're focused like the reason to build out of a global 5g telecom network is for consumer use um there's no other demand uh market that's big enough to, to warrant the investment um to build out a you know nationwide scale would he would helium be better off though not being the one to actually sell the be the front end for the consumer like in, in in theory helium could basically just provide the network and other people could build on top of helium right uh yes uh i think so there's been this idea in uh if you're live in telecom land for the last 10 years it's been out there called this idea of kind of what's called carrier offload and the idea is that there are specific places where carriers either don't have coverage or they have poor coverage like let's say at a football stadium is kind of like the quintessential example uh and there can be agreements negotiated between let's say verizon and whatever the guy who owns the football stadium to have some sort of carrier offload function there um so th this idea has been floating around for a while um it really hasn't taken off in any meaningful way um my expectation is that uh the helium network will probably become the first network where you know real nationwide carriers both in the united states as well as in other countries i think will sign carrier offload deals um with the with helium uh because it mm -hmm. will be in their interest to do so um so yeah it, that that can happen uh it hasn't happened yet uh, definitely part of the part of the game plan and the further you dig into uh telecom nerd land the more you you kind of learn about carrier offload carrier offload is when you go to like a you know the giant stadium or something and it just says verizon wi-fi access right it's a way to basically deploy to that, divert reduce congestion basically of the network yeah it's, it's not in that specific instance it's not clear to me if verizon actually put up some infrastructure right. in the stadium or if the stadium did it themselves uh, there's gonna be different configurations of that you can also imagine train stations, subway stations, right. I mean, even parks like for music festivals and stuff. Like there's a lot of these places where you get heightened congestion and where carriers uh, are, are generally, you know, not providing great service. Dimitri, are you uh, optimistic or pessimistic on, uh, I guess, both both of those B2B and, and B2C D-PIN? I look at it from the perspective, you know, if you're building a business even outside of D-PIN, there's pros and cons to each. If you're doing B2B, the pro is that it's quite easy to find PMF because there's a relatively small number of customers that you need to go to. And it's pretty straightforward. You you go to a business, you ask them what they want, they tell you, and then you turn around and 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 you build that. The it's difficult that easy, friends, that easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to generalize beyond one customer is hard because yeah. there's often quite unique demand uh, need for 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 one say like enterprise. Um, on the other hand, with consumer, it's very difficult to understand what the market need is because you need to do a lot of quite in-depth market research and, and often people will tell you what they think they want and it's not actually the thing that they want. Um, but then if you manage to hit that, then it's very easy to scale and generalize. Uh, it feels like that the order of operations for, for, um, for DPIN uh, networks that have been moderately successful on on the demand side, uh, and 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 I define success more as some tangible willingness to pay more so than the number of uh, like the amount of supply you have on. Um, they have tended to start out with B two B first, and I think that's actually um, uh, quite nice because then you know if you have some finite. Uh, token incentives that you can use to actually bootstrap a supply site. It would help if you knew exactly what you're trying to, to, to achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of my, my sense about it. Um, there, there's obviously uh, uh, concerns with like general, like market size, I think for, um, for a lot of these uh, uh, projects, if you're just targeting uh, 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 B2B. Um, but I think you cannot, run a sustainable token economy if there is no fiat inflow and you kind of gravitate to where there's willingness to pay. And it seems like when you look at a lot of these projects, it tends to be more on the B2B side today. Hmm. Kyle, in, um, I was rereading re your guys's post proof of physical work that I think Tushar published in <laughs> let's call it Q2 2022. And there were five main benefits of 
actually of the crypto element of this, because someone listening, maybe who's not in crypto land might say, well, yeah, there's a lot of businesses like this, right? Um, you know, more servers equals lower latency equals more servers, lower latency, demand drives revenue, drives R&D, drives better UX, drives demand. Like this is a normal model, right? This is a Web2 model. So, but you guys laid out these five benefits of using crypto. I think it was integration with DeFi rails, frictionless payments, collective ownership, credible neutrality, and rapid scale, I think was the fifth one. What are, I mean, looking back, to, you know, two years later, how would you stack rank those in, in, in terms of order of importance, basically? And is there anything that you would take off that list or anything that you would add? I think the fact that you can go global very quickly is a, is a big deal. Um, no one who's ever, I mean, if you're building on any business in which you're scaling out physical infrastructure, like going global is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, dealing with all the legal entities and hiring people and dealing with all the time zones, it just like, that's a huge, huge logistical challenge. Um, and deep in network, kind of the beautiful part of them is they self-organize. You write the rules of the protocol, you enforce those cryptographically. Uh, and then you just tell everyone else in the world, like, Hey guys, if you're interested, sign up. Um, and so the ability to, to scale globally is, is, uh, a, a pretty huge deal. Um, and that that's moreover, that's also enabled by having global payment, cheap global payment rails, um, sending, 20 cent, $1, $3 payments to people in Africa, to people in India, to people in China uh, is, is not doable. Um, and that's kind of the whole point of the vision of these, of these networks is they should have uh, facilitate large numbers of very small transactions. Mm. Um, doing that in, in the US, yeah, maybe it's possible like inside of Square's ledger or inside of Venmo's ledger or Apple's ledger. Doing that around the world, like forget about it. That's, that's not going to happen. Um, so crypto really is the... Uh, you know, in terms of scaling the network, both logistically and in terms of facilitating those payments. Um, I think that's really the big unlock. Um, I think the other stuff is, is important, but those are probably the two that I would highlight. Dimitri, what about you? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about scale and and and, and I think, you know, crypto is an enabler of that. I think programmatic payments are, are special. Um, I think the interesting part is... Uh, to me, it's more so like the interesting part is having latent supply onto the network and programmatically enforcing that um, uh, uh, rather than uh, enforcing or uh, incentivizing people to uh, have some capital outlay. Um, I, I think the, the, uh, the CapEx cost of buying infrastructure, I think, can be incentivized in other ways. Uh, he, like here's a straw man example. Um, uh, imagine you know Verizon or or you know Xfinity wanted to um, uh, have people purchase you know some some hotspot for uh, for whatever reason. What they can say is if you buy this piece of hardware, you will get a twenty percent discount off your bill for the next year or two. That's a very different way of incentivizing. The, the the build out of uh, of infrastructure and the procurement of that, um, but those folks, uh, you know, I'd like I think a fairly large portion of the population would actually want that. Um, I think it becomes more interesting when you look at more commoditized hardware that's already online and more internet native, because I think that's where having um, programmable incentives uh, uh, becomes particularly more impactful. All right, I mentioned them in the pre-roll. Now I'm going to bring them up again. It's Arbitrum. Santi and I are really fed up with these high fees and we're really excited to have teamed up with Arbitrum for the next couple of months on Empire. As the leading Ethereum scaling solution, Arbitrum now powers hundreds of decentralized apps across DeFi, perps, NFTs, gaming, and a whole lot more. The team has showed us everything in the ecosystem, both now and what's to come, and we're really, really excited about it. Arbitrum allows both daily users and developers to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. The way the team got me excited was through portal.arbitrum.io. So my call to action to you is to get started by visiting portal.arbitrum.io. Go experience on-chain like it was meant to be.
For a lot of Empire listeners, your crypto is not just another number on a screen. It's part of your future. I know Santi and myself feel that way. Our security sponsor of this episode, Harpy, takes this responsibility seriously and is the only wallet security tool that shields users from both on-chain threats and sneaky off-chain signature attacks. If you've ever been in that situation where you're moving quickly, you approve something on-chain, you realize that the address might be a dubious address or you're really hoping that you could take that back, Harpy has you covered. Harpy can redirect your assets to your self-custodied vault, ensuring they remain completely under your control, safe and sound. With Harpy's always-on monitoring, you're not just detecting threats, you're actively blocking and recovering compromised assets from malicious transactions before they can even confirm on-chain. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. So if you're serious about protecting Protecting your crypto investments, it's time to make the switch. Secure your wallet for free at harpy.io forward slash empire. That's harpy, H-A-R-P-I-E dot I-O forward slash empire. If you want it to be even easier, just click the link in the show notes. Let me tell you guys the way I think about it, maybe. Um, and I'd love to hear why I'm right or wrong here. I think the simplest way that I've tried to understand DPIN is just on a CapEx, OpEx. Like if someone came to you and said, I'm building Verizon, but I can. I found a way to do it with capex and opex at a hundred times cheaper. That or or any built business in the world, but I could bring your capex and opex down by ninety percent. That's a good business, right? Because then you can pass some of those savings. You can throw some of that to the balance sheet and throw some of that onto savings for the customer, which will grow, which will help you guys eat at market share. So I think on the capex front, uh, with centralized infrastructure, you have massive upfront capital requirements, um, which create huge barriers to entry. And just make it really, really, really tough to continue doing R&D and developing. Um, whereas in DPIN, you have uh, the users are contributing the capital, right? They're contributing the, the capital and oftentimes the labor, as is the case with, you know, someone like HiveMapper, right? Google has to pay the drivers as opposed to HiveMapper, um, where the users are contributing with both capital and labor. And then on the OPEX side, I mean, how many people do you think I've done, you know, when you call Verizon, like how many people are dealing with, uh, you know, working in the bureaucratic system that is Verizon, right? There's probably 50,000 people on the operations team of Verizon, as opposed to, you know, I don't know, Kyle, how many people Helium has at their company, but 50, 100, 200, like, it is just uh, remarkably different OPEX, basically, of running one of these businesses. So I think it really does come down to just, you can build similar type of products with, you know, 95% cheaper OPEX and CAPEX. I'd be curious what you guys think of that as the argument. So, so I have an issue with uh, uh, capex costs um, as the main uh, uh, driver um, uh, for uh, for the reason being one. I don't think the capex magically disappears. You know, mm-hmm. it still gets distributed to a wide set of a supply side, and because the supply side tends to be less corporate, more retail. I think it actually in some way caps the upside because, you know, edge case scenario, say you need a large investment to build out some infrastructure in the scale of tens to uh, to hundred million dollars. Uh, there, I don't think are enough people to actually be able to have that capital outlay. Um, but the moat, I think for traditional, you know, let's call them C pens, I think is Wall Street because they're still able to finance these things via cheap debt financing. So mm-hmm. yes, you can have some distributed capital outlay, but I don't think that is really effective at scale versus other methods of financing infrastructure build out. That's that's one. And then two is that when uh, uh, when we talk about um, uh, unit economics and uh, and uh, and the costs of these things. I think the costs often get reintroduced back into the system as you scale a project, and uh, this kind of goes to the demand side. I think a lot of projects that are focusing on cost are focusing on the wrong thing because I think a large part of the demand side actually doesn't really care about costs relative to other factors like service, mm. quality, uptime, reliability. Um, I, I have a friend who's the uh, the head of strategy at a CDM project that I won't name, and and you know like he was leaving, and and we were catching up. I I asked him what happened. He said, oh, you know, we didn't find 
PMF and, and I said, why? And he's like, oh, you know, our customers were you know, the, uh, uh, the, the YouTubes of the world. And, you know, we were going to them and saying, we can produce your CDN cost by 80%. And the customer said, great, that's a cost, but it's not a cost center for us in the sense that, you know, we'd be happy to pay more if it meant actually offering a better service, especially relative to our competitors. So that's a fairly big disconnect. Um, but yeah, I think those are some of the reasons why I push back against those two points. Hmm. Yeah. I have, a, I have a fun counter. Go for it. That's why we bring um, so, uh, in the case of helium and hive mapper, I mean, what, one of the things we look for in deep in investments is what is the structural cost arbitrage, um, that the team is trying to capitalize on in the case of helium, it specifically is real estate. Um, Verizon, uh, they have to either lease a, a space from someone who owns a building to put a tower on top of a building or American Tower does the same thing and then they, they lease from American Tower. But that, that, that's an explicit OPEX cost um, is for real estate. Um, uh, and then relatedly for the, for the employees around it, right? So you have to hire a guy to drive to the tower and check in on the tower every now and again. Uh, whereas in, in Helium, if your hotspot goes offline, uh, you like it's your job to... To get it back online and there's no dollar associated with that so that you actually remove costs from the system in a very direct way um in the case of hive mapper um obviously that would be the person is already driving around google pays people today to drive around um obviously the correct way to capture that data is to capture it while someone is already driving around so so those are actual fundamental uh arbitrages in the cost structure um that, and that, that's definitely one of the key things we look for when we, when we do deep investing. Um, that's part of what you alluded to, which is cost. The other side, Dimitri alluded to, which is interesting, is, is service quality. And, that, and that's definitely real. Not everyone is strictly optimizing for the cheapest cost. Service quality is, is the thing. Um, HiveMapper here is probably the most interesting, which is um, HiveMapper, especially in, in major metros, they're capturing um, you know, updated maps 20 to 100x more frequently than Google is. Um, because people are driving around those roads every day. Um, not all customers need the, the freshest maps, um, but there are certain customers who really do. Um, the most obvious example would be Zillow. And not that Zillow is a customer of HiveMapper, but you can very much imagine a world in the not too distant future in which we, you're looking at homes on Zillow and you get, there's an option that's like, show me a photo of this house from the street as of two days ago. All right. Um, you can imagine that for real estate agents and everything else. So that, that kind of customer, like Google cannot serve that customer today because the images are too old. If you have a photo of the house from nine months ago, like that, that's just weird, right? It needs to be fresh. Um, so there's actually certain things that, that HiveMapper unlocks that were not possible before. Yeah, and, and, and freshness is a different value prop than cost, which I think does Correct. work, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so novel. Just saying, D-pins don't strictly have to compete on cost. In the case of HiveMapper, it actually a lot. The DPIN model allows them to offer something that Google is can never offer, um, which in this case is freshness. So it's a right. different you know element of, of the service. Right. I, I I do think they will be. I think the projects that focus on the net new rather than just competing on costs will likely have a greater chance of success. You know, even looking at it from. I suppose a distributed systems perspective, it's really difficult to imagine a decentralized network to be cheaper than a centralized one because of the redundancy and the latency overhead with consensus and uh, and 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 verification. Um, it feels like projects that focus on net new are doing something that is harder to replicate. Um, I also wonder though. Is Google not doing this because they don't want to, or because there hasn't been enough demand from from their customers? You know, I, I I wonder what a thought experiment might be if they actually see, hey, we're we're you know our API business is starting to lose quite a bit of of, uh, of money too. Uh, I mean, Google does like Google Maps makes a remarkable amount of money. I think I think uh, I have a friend at Uber, and they pay, I think they paid fifty or six. Uber alone paid fifty or sixty million. I think this is pretty sure yeah. this is public. Uh, fifty or sixty million dollars uh, over the last two or three years to Google just for their map service, right? If you look at, um, we we almost hired someone who worked at Mapbox, 
And they were saying Google basically has a full monopoly on the market. Mapbox is doing pretty well too, but Google's just jacked their prices up so much every year because no one, I mean, no one's basically able to compete with them on on the supply side of of, of mapping all this stuff. So, uh, Google Maps is estimated to be more than ten billion. They don't break it out in in their filings, but but there's a lot of analysts who've you know backed into that number various ways and. General consensus is more $10 than $10 billion. billion. Google Maps is $10 billion. Yeah, $10 billion annually. Um, the estimates are, I believe, also Uber pays more than $100 million today to Google. Per year. $100 million. Okay, well. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's also out there. Well, it's nuts. Uh, what about Filecoin? So why, when I think Deepin, like Filecoin is kind of like the first uh, the first big one, basically. Um, why has the Filecoin game taken so long to play out? Um, question I've thought a lot about. Uh, Multicoin is an investor in, in Filecoin. We... I hated Filecoin for a long time, uh, and then did a 180. Uh, and so you're back on the Filecoin, Filecoin train. I, I, well, I was never on and off. I, I started off, and, and now I'm on. Um, Multicoin owns owns some Filecoin, and we've invested in uh, one Filecoin based team, and looking to add more. Um, the the core challenge for Filecoin, I think, is twofold. One, it's technically really really hard to prove that you're storing content. Um, it, it's just like technically a, a very, very difficult concept um, to do. And the second, I think, really big impediment to them has been, uh, it, it's kind of as Dimitri was alluding to earlier, cost alone is not enough. Um, most customers don't care about their S3 bills. They do care about AWS bills as a whole, but S3 is actually a very small part of that. Um, and so being cheaper alone is not enough. They offer some other guarantees like the content addressing and, and some other um, redundancy stuff. So like they, they do have elements uh, that they, they try and differentiate from AWS on, but the reality is, is that like it's been out for three years and yeah, the demand is not what we want it to be. And so that tells you that it's, it's not differentiated enough. Um, I suspect what's going to drive Filecoin's growth in the next handful of years is not going to be Snapchat, you know, ripping and replacing Google Cloud for some part of their functions and switching to Filecoin. It's going to be the growth of crypto native services. Yeah. Um, Hive, Hive Mapper being like the most obvious example. Um, Farcaster would be another one. I think these kinds of companies, Audius and, and these kinds of things, will be the ones who are the primary demand drivers for basically anyone who's trying to unbundle AWS in a, in a distributed way. Um, and those guys will be the, the first real customers at scale for someone like Filecoin. I think once enough of those customers are out there, then I, you can start to see the Web2 companies starting to switch. But I, I still think that's that's pretty far out. Yeah, I think they, uh, they've done a good job on the supply side. You know, I think part of the issue also is around retrievability, which then is not great if you're on the demand side. What was and, that word that you just said? Retrievability? Yeah, yeah. Actually retrieving the files from IPFS. Mm. And I think that's where... You know, like yeah, S three works good enough for for uh, for people, and and I think people just often don't want to think about another problem. And 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 I think Kyle's point on more crypto native, I think, is probably a better way to go um, because you might have more novel demand that that cannot be serviced by S three that has other things that they're looking for. Um, but yeah, it's been somewhat disheartening to see uh, the, the kind of paltry numbers on the demand side with a willingness to pay. You know, I think like, like that's something that I, I hope people pay more attention to, you know, because again, it's, it's, it's fairly easy to, uh, uh, to bootstrap a, a, a supply side, you know, and, and, and I think the, like the argument is also TBD on, on, on to what extent, you know, that's valuable, you know, going back to uh, the supply side in a decentralized network being less efficient. I think the Filecoin uh, thesis was probably more so that the the network is le- uh, less efficient, but it's more of like an economics argument where if you have enough supply, if you have just more supply, then that'll drive the market down. At the same time, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to run a data center. You know, and 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 they're selling you know, like these mini nuclear reactors now, you know, where 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 you can use that to power, you know, your uh, your data center with electricity for the next fifty plus years. You know, so 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 I think um, technologies don't operate in a vacuum as well. 
Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I think that's been a struggle for them. Dimitri, when you were researching the token side of Deepin, I don't know if you were able to go down that rabbit hole, but there, it seems like there's a couple different um, approaches that we've seen. There's like time-based um, like token launches, there's supply KPIs and demand side um, token issue. I'm talking really about the token issuance. I don't know if you have th- general thoughts around like the right model uh, to do token issuance for a deep end project. I haven't gone super deep into it. I do think it is good to bake in some demand focused elasticity into your emissions rate, because I think that, you know, every project you have a finite number of tokens and, and I think you, uh, you need You're to be very wasting token dilution basically. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if there is, you know, a high emission rate, um, but not a lot of supply on the network, um, uh, then that's, you know, centralization. Um, uh, you ideally want to find a way where you tailor your emission rate to some KPIs, either supply or demand. Um, I think it's fine for um, uh, uh, for projects to have some terminal emission rate um, because I think it is good to to have effectively some additional ammunition there. Um, I also think it's good to have more granularity. I think Hive, uh, I'm not sure if it's HiveMapper or uh, Helium has been doing a clustering uh, uh, as a strategy. Um, I think that is a good evolution in thinking. You know, it's basically, I, I, I look at, you know, like these tokens as a very powerful incentive. And I think teams need to think about how to be very targeted um, and, and, and how to preserve the supply. Because I think, you know, if you run out of, of tokens after, you know, two years, then that becomes quite difficult to, to compete. What happened with healing? I mean, you're basically operating on a spectrum of efficiency of your token and like your cap table with quotes around it and, and growth mode, right? And Helium went full growth mode um, and had you had very strong incentives. I remember, uh, Kyle, you invited us uh, down to the Helium launch party in 2019, I want to say it was, in Austin. Um, and we sent two folks from Blockworks and one of them, there were some drinks that were had and one of them spent, it was like 500 bucks to get this, to get the hotspot and they put it in their home actually in their New York apartment, I think they made like 150 K from this thing or something. Um, so the, uh, extremely high incentives to deploy on day one, the counter is that, um, probably leads to, if you do that model, like helium did, it probably leads to what happened to helium, which was, there was a decent crash in the token price. Um, but I don't know, Kyle, I'd love to get your, your take on this as well. Like token issuance. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 Challenge Helium faced was it was the first one. And quite frankly, we didn't think it was going to work. We were like, we really wanted it to work. Neither did we. I remember they called us. They're like, should we buy this thing? I was like, ah, I don't, I don't really know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we were really scared it wasn't going to work. And so uh, the, the, the right move was to be very aggressive so that if those people out there exist who do believe, like you can get them on the bandwagon and get them to go tell their friends and, you know, get, get that out there. The thing is, the the world has changed now because Helium has proven some success and now HiveMap and others, uh, is that now the, everyone in the market who's watching has some reason to believe it is possible um, to pull off something of this nature. And so you you just don't need to be as aggressive on a go-forward basis with, with token emissions. HiveMap, I'm most familiar with their, their algorithm for for how they hand out tokens. Uh, I mean, it's it's really very granular and very nuanced. They have a, a city level multiplier. So for example, like if they need more people mapping in Seoul versus Phoenix, like they can increase the multiplier on Seoul um, versus Phoenix. They can also do that uh, time-based. If they need freshness in whatever, downtown Tokyo, they can uh, say, you know, after X amount of fresh time has passed, this certain region of roads gets their own localized multiplier. Um, so like all of those are already built into the system. And on top of all of that, they recently added the ability, I think they call them hotspots, I think is the term they use. Um, they wrote about it in a blog post a few weeks ago. But but now they they actually, uh, HiveMapper Inc. can now go onto a map and say, I want a fresh data point here and like drop a pin on the map. 
and then they're creating a bounty. They'll say, I'll pay you 20 honey tokens, whatever. Like, please drive here. Mm. Um, and then if you have the Hive Mapper app installed on your phone, you can get anywhere nearby, you'll get a notification, right? To like go to this address or whatever. Um, so you can be hyper, hyper targeted with um, token distribution. Um, and so that, that, that degree of precision is obviously the, the right model. Now, again, you, it, it's harder to do that for a wireless network than it is for, for mapping. Um, but yeah, you certainly want to be very thoughtful um, mm. in, in how you design the, the algorithm that, that hands out the tokens. I'd love to ask one more, or go ahead, Dimitri. Uh, yeah, so that, like we can also learn things from outside of Deepin that can potentially be applied. For example, the point system, because for, for points, you don't need to ascribe what percentage of the network you are going to distribute, right? So, so you could have epochs where you have a point system that still serves as an incentivization and an accounting methodology for the supply side. And they look at, you know, a leaderboard, but they're not looking at what percent of the supply they're getting. So, so it, it can be, you know, 1% of the supply per epoch still based on a point system. And my, my sense is that might still be quite um, attractive to actually um, incentivize particular kinds of behavior for the supply side as well. That's interesting. I, uh, one more question, Kyle, for you on Helium takeaways. Um, what are your thoughts around open sourcing hardware? Uh, generally, it's good for these networks to maximize scale and credible neutrality. Um, if you're launching a new deep in with some sort of custom hardware, almost certainly the right answer on day one is to do it in-house. Um, you need to, to do this for, for quality. For just control, yeah. Okay. Control for quality, control for branding, control for just the early community. You want that community to be really tight-knit. Um, you probably, quite frankly, need the revenue to keep the lights on because uh, like you, you haven't you know, made any money yet for the business. So there's a whole bunch of reasons to do that. Uh, and actually, maybe the, the biggest one is uh, designing any of these algorithms that, that verify you know, things in the, in the real world um, is much harder to do when you, you cannot assume control over the hardware. Um, so I remember when we, back when we were first doing our Helium d diligence way back in the day, that was actually one of the, the items we spent probably the most amount of time on in our original mm -hmm. DD. Um, so those are all a very hard problem. And that, that problem is much harder in an open source environment. Um, having said that, if you really do want to build something that's truly global in scale, that's truly credibly neutral, that doesn't have a single centralized point of failure, then obviously you, you want to, to decentralize the hardware part over time. And so Helium started moving in that direction. I think within one year of the network launching, I forget which HIP it was, maybe it was HIP 20 or something, was where they, they started moving in the direction of having third-party manufacturers. Um, at this point, I believe there's like seven or eight different manufacturers making hardware for, for Helium networks. Um, so it's been a gradual process, but, but it's you know, been pr pretty thoroughly decentralized at this point. Hmm. Dimitri, how do you think about active versus passive DPIN? Basically in media land, in crypto media land, all the crypto media folks are trying to figure out if you can use tokens, talking about using token, like basically building on, there's a whole conversation happening about on-chain media. And um, a few companies right now are experimenting with basically paying readers and like podcast listeners tokens. Um for, you know, you read this newsletter, we'll give you one, one token. And I really hate that model because it's uh what you're doing is you're basically putting a dollar value on somebody's time. So by Kyle opening up our newsletter and we give him two cents, I'm basically saying, okay, Kyle took two minutes to read this newsletter and we gave him two cents. Kyle's time is now worth one minute for one cent. Um, and I just think it's a really bad model basically. Um, but I, it got me thinking about DPIN in terms of like, if you look at the successful folks, HiveMapper and Helium, those are passive DPIN networks. Um, <laughs> but I've seen some people play around with active DPIN networks. I'd be curious to get, yeah, Dimitri, or both of your takes, honestly. It's interesting you bucket HiveMapper into passive because I would think that would be active because they need to actually Well, drive. you're already driving. Um, yeah. I don't think, basically, I don't think... What media is trying to do, what others, Blockworks, I don't think is, is actually, Blockworks is not going to do this, but um, what some other media companies in crypto are doing is they're basically saying, hey, look, if we give our users tokens, 
we think we can, let's say, increase an open rate on a newsletter from 25 to 35%. Um, I don't think, yeah, or, you know, we can get 20% more podcast listeners. I, and I don't believe that works. Um, in the same way that I don't think Hive Mapper, because people are getting paid, are driving 20% more or taking a longer commute to work. That's interesting. I, I mean, I'd love to see the data for that. I guess my mental model, um, uh, particularly on this uh, supply side, it feels that passive is better because if your goal is to bring on latent supply onto the network, then you want to make it as frictionless as possible. So downloading a browser extension, you know, was like grass, you know, to, to, uh, uh, to be a proxy. Um, that feels very low friction, you know, installing, uh, telco hardware feels more difficult. And it, uh, it feels like the more effort that it takes to actually set up the supply side, the more trouble you're going to have with actually scaling it. You know, I think it also probably depends on what the, what the demands that actually wants. Um, but I think, Passive just feels like lower friction. Yeah, we, we, this is one of the primary things we, we look for yep. in, in our deep investments is we passive. Is, it, it's very hard to have a structural cost arbitrage <laughs> if the person is actively spending their time um, to, to, to fulfill the service. Obviously, Helium, you plug it in once and set it and forget it. With Hive Mapper, it's again the intended use is set and forget. Um, okay. I'll contrast it interestingly. There's been a handful of teams that have. Uh, tried to do kind of hive mapper, but for drones, the idea being like, hey, let's get updated mapping coverage of, of uh, drone, whatever footage. The problem with that um, market is the FAA says uh, drones need to always have one person who's in direct line of sight controlling a drone. Um, and so in order to have regional you know, mapping, like w w where's the cost arbitrage and deep in coming from? Someone still has to buy the drone and they still have to spend the time to fly it every day or every week or whatever. Um, whereas in Helium and Hive Mapper, they're set it and forget it. And so you're no longer paying for someone's time. Um, that, that, that's a very, very substantial thing we look for. Nice. Um, all right, guys. Those are kind of the main things I wanted to to get your take on. Anything, um, I guess, Kyle, <laughs> I'll throw to you first and then Dimitri, I'll throw the same question to you. But and anything that you think is we're clearly missing from this conversation that you think is important as we think about deep in, in context of, you know, 2024 and, and this cycle. Um, I think we've done a good job covering it. I mean, it, it's just an area where we're super excited about. Um, the use cases are, are generally easy to understand generally are being going after monopolies. Um, and so everyone hates the monopolies. So it's also like a good, you know, David versus Goliath kind of a story. Both Helium and Hive Mapper have even Render and the others all all kind of have that that um, uh, framing to them. So it's something you're excited about, something that you know hopefully you can tell your mom and grandma about to justify why you work in fake internet money. Um, they also have the non-speculative. Yeah. They have the this nice right. non-speculative uh, real real world uh, you know use case type of thing. Moving crypto into the meat space type of thing. So <laughs> yeah, so great stories to tell to. Friends, skeptics, um, yeah, we're, we're super pumped about it. Nice. Nice. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, actually related to that, you know, it's, it's, it, it's really just making sure, you know, projects, founders, uh, uh, you know, investors think about both sides. You know, I think a lot of the conversation and narrative has been on the supply side. And I, I think there should be more focus on the demand side. Uh, probably beyond Deepin, um, but to also realize that, you know, crypto is largely a generational phenomenon as well. And and I think younger folks get it because they grew up as digital natives, but to get to mainstream uh, uh, scale uh, uh, for a Deepin on either the supply side or uh, uh, or demand side, you likely need to go beyond that cohort. You know, and 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 to really have that discipline in thinking about what is the persona of my supply and demand side today? Where do I think it's going to be in 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 three years? How do I reduce the friction of uh, of of both sides? And are there any particular use cases where the demographics on either the supply or demand side skew younger? Because I think that like that actually is. 
um, a very important factor in 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 uh, in any crypto user that uh, that we see today. Nice, cool, gents. I appreciate it, Kyle, Dimitri. Thanks for coming on. Um, and yeah, I think this will be the first of many deep end conversations we have this year. So I appreciate it. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Everyone, Jason here. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. Wanted to take a quick second to thank today's title sponsor, Arbitrum. We know you are tired of on-chain experiences that have unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds, and that's why we partnered with Arbitrum. You can experience frictionless trades, lightning speed, and lag-free transactions, all for pennies per transaction. Explore Arbitrum's expanding ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. That's portal.arbitrum.io. See you for the next episode. Everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code. See you in London.